Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 2nd, 2021. It's late morning in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. I hope you're all well. We're preparing for July 4th. Actually, to be honest, I'm not really preparing for July 4th, but most Americans are to celebrate their independence. And yet in the midst of all this, COVID continues to, I don't know if it's fester, but certainly make the headlines. Um, Lots of updates on um, the vaccine, whether it's effective, whether it's ineffective, whether it protects us against new uh, new new kinds of uh, versions of COVID um, questions in the New York Times about whether Joseph Biden, the current president, is declaring independence from the virus too soon. Of course, there's both the politics and the science of declaring independence, particularly uh, a couple of days before uh, July 4th. Meanwhile, it seems as if the pandemic. This has become a word that we all accept. I'm not exactly sure whether that's the right word to describe COVID. Uh, whether uh, certainly COVID has, has, has resulted in us changing everything about our lives, about how we work, about how we don't work. Headline in the Times about retiring early. And above all else, I think rethinking the very nature of health. Uh, my guest today on the show is a is a quite remarkable man actually uh in many ways not just as a scientist but in terms of his uh, remarkable life his name is peter sterling he's the author of many things um he's a distinguished professor at the university of pennsylvania uh as well as a, a longtime political activist uh, his last book is called what is health and he is uh, honored, we are honored that he's talking to us from Massachusetts. Peter, um, what has COVID taught you? Is, are, there, are there new lessons that you hadn't thought of before this so-called pandemic? I don't know whether you, you think that's the right word to describe uh, the COVID. Well, I, I think it's a pretty good uh, description. Um, I'd say when it first started, uh, uh, I and a number of my friends went back to Camus' uh, The Plague. And, and uh, if you read that, written, I guess, in the late 40s, about uh, a, a plague year in, in Algeria, it, uh, it sounded pretty familiar. So, uh, yes, I think it was a big deal. And I think, I think one of the things that actually uh, Tim Jackson, in his new book, um, uh, brings out is that it, it stopped... Post-growth, uh, we, we had Jackson on the show, and actually Tim Jackson was um, generous enough to introduce me to Peter, so there is a connection. His new book, uh, Tim Jackson, we talked to him uh, last month, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Yeah, I, so I just finished that, and I, uh, it's, it's a wonderful book, and I think it, it clarifies that uh, the pandemic stopped the world capitalism in its tracks, and, and guess what? Uh, we we can do without it. So I, I thought that was a that was one lesson uh, for me. Um, the the pandemic has enabled me to speak to many people about the ideas in my book that I wouldn't have been able to. I could teach a course 
at the University of Pennsylvania, living in Massachusetts now. I could give lectures from Panama, where I live uh, part of the year. And uh, without, you know, all I have to do is get out of bed and open my computer. So it's uh, Zoom has been a big, big deal, I think, for everybody. Peter, you have, a, and we'll get to this in a little bit more detail later in our conversation, you have a long history. Uh, you're, uh, I don't think it's any secret, you're 80 years old. Um, you were born into a communist family or communist sympathizers, and it's shaped your life on lots of levels. Has COVID confirmed um, the teachings of your parents, of, of the party, of the idea of uh, capitalism being profoundly flawed? Uh, well, I'm not, sh I'm not sure that I needed, we needed that lesson. I, I think, I, I think, uh, what I'm more interested in right now is that, uh, that the country seems to be opening up a bit. I think after, I think what the lesson that was taught was less by COVID, but George Floyd, I think the Right. The shock of George Floyd and the fact that we now have videos, vi telephone, uh, phone, smartphone videos of all of these acts that have been going on for centuries is a uh, is a big deal. And, and that's that's really what's opened things up right now. I wouldn't be probably wouldn't be talking to you if it wasn't for George Floyd. This is the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Rides, um, which, of course, resulted in. Uh, much of the civil rights, success of the civil rights movement or the beginnings of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. You were a young man, Peter, a student at, at, at Cornell, and you were brave enough, some people might say crazy enough, certainly committed enough to be part of that first wave of, of freedom riders. Um, before you, you talk about that and we celebrate the 60th anniversary, is there a connection? Is it coincidental that the year of COVID is also the year of Black Lives Matter. You you seem to suggest that it isn't. Oh, you know, I I don't know. Uh, if 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 somebody likes that idea, I guess I could go along with it. But I I think it's really uh, the uh, I think it's the shock of of all these shootings that were going on in the context of the uh, of the you know the Trump administration and the kind of life. Uh, that he he brought us, and uh, I think it's a struggle really between this serious racist uh, administration and and the, and the filming of of George Floyd that that has really shocked a lot of people and made them ready to pay attention. I mean, for example, when I proposed to teach a course about my on my book, which is a very it's a very basic science book. But it it shows the way from molecules up to social problems. I propose to teach this at the University of Pennsylvania to graduate students in neuroscience. And uh, the director of the program said, oh, yes, great. I'll take it. Moreover, we'll call it neuroscience, health and social justice. This this is not a, a t course title that would ever have been uh, proposed or permitted. Uh, over the decades that I, I was teaching. Now now it's possible. Well, you're one of the figures, Peter, I think, who's breaking down the boundaries between the hard sciences like neuroscience and the social sciences, um, 
history of racism and, and, and injustice. You had a very interesting piece um, in, in Time earlier this year entitled How Neuroscience Could Explain the Rise of Addictions, Heart Disease and Diabetes in 21st Century America. All these diseases, of course, are very much, as you, as you suggest in, in your work, rooted in, in, in social injustice. Um, what, is, what does neuroscience tell us about the way in which disease afflicts certain groups, particularly underprivileged groups, more than the privileged? Yeah, well, that, that is the, the key question, and that's really what my book is about. So uh, when, I, when I began uh, studying uh, first as an undergraduate, and I continued on at the University of Pennsylvania in, in School of Medicine, uh, the idea of the body was uh, health is just something that uh, the body is regulated uh, independently of the brain. So the idea is if you uh, uh, had some uh, rise in blood glucose, that the, your pancreas would automatically secrete insulin and cause a reduction in, in glucose. And, and so the body was completely self-regulating. And of course, that was true of blood pressure as well. So if you had high blood pressure, people sort of wondered, well, why, how do you get that? Why is that? Um, must have something to do with you eat, that, with eating too much salt or bad genes. And of course, uh, black people uh, suffer much more and much higher high blood pressure. And people say, well, we don't really understand that. There's something defective about them. And I began to look at this in the, uh, in the early 70s with, with a man named Joseph Iyer. Uh, as a follow-up to my, my experience working in the ghetto where I saw people who had strokes uh, from hypertension. And I found evidence, neural, neural evidence, that nerve fibers from the brain uh, contact all the blood vessels, they contact the heart, they contact the kidney that raises uh, blood pressure. And so it seemed to me clear that social tension really uh, has path neural pathways to cause hypertension. And that's really the message that I've been preaching in a way uh, and working to elucidate uh, since about 1975. Pete, uh, um, we had Angus Deaton, who I know you know, the Nobel Prize winning uh, Princeton University sociologist on the show. Uh, and you write a lot about Deaton and his wife, uh, Anne Case's work on the flaws in capitalism uh, and the injustices. Uh, are you on the same page as Deaton when it comes to these new diseases rampaging the poor of America, particularly the opioid crisis? Absolutely. I, I use his data uh, extensively in, in my book. I, I reprint his graphs and I show them when I give lectures. And uh, uh, the National Academy of Sciences actually has a new report out that came in March. It's a 475-page report. Um, and uh, it documents in detail the statistics that Deaton uh, was reporting uh, earlier. And they sort of scratched their heads. Well, Dayton called it a death of despair. I don't know. We really have to study what do we mean by despair. Uh, I've written a, a critique of this, which I'm, I'm waiting, hoping will be published soon, saying, you know, uh, suicide is a very good measure of despair. We don't need further study about this. And so the, the, uh, the official uh, scientific establishment is still sort of wondering what the problem is, 
where it's pretty clear what the problem is, is that not only is there structural racism and, and overt racism, but the basic supports that people need to get through the life cycle. They need, um, they need prenatal care, they need maternal care, they need uh, child care, preschool, they need um, decent jobs and health care. And when there's no prospect of this, people uh, lose hope and they decide to, uh, you know, that they really don't want to live. And that's really the issue that we face now. And I think Deaton uh, and Ann Case have done a fantastic job in, in documenting this. And they, of course, uh, won the Nobel Prize for that work. In, in your time piece, uh, you write, uh, the conditions of human life began to improve with the enlightenment of the 18th century. And you suggest we are in many ways better off. Uh, but then you go on, it hasn't been an unbroken line of advancements. In the last three decades, U.S. death rates have risen steeply from suicide and compulsive consumption of alcohol and drugs. Uh, and then you talk about uh, uh, Case and Deaton. Um, is this affecting whites now more than African-Americans? Is it a white problem as opposed to a black problem historically? It, well, it's affecting everybody. Uh, the the mo The... Uh, the black community uh, of, of younger ages um, had been for a long time improving because they started at, at death rates that were like tenfold. A young black man die at, I don't know, five, five or more fold uh, higher mortality rates than whites. But their lives over the last, you know, 20, 30 years has been gradually improving. And moreover, People, younger people have, had the feeling that they would do better than their parents. The white uh, people, uh, uh, particularly those in, uh, with no education beyond high school or even less, they uh, now have the prospect of doing worse than their parents. And so their, their despair has been rising sharply. Moreover, the death rates used to be high in the city and low in the country, but now uh, the countryside has been sort of so uh, become so desolate that the uh, the highest rates of of uh, despair and 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 deaths from despair are in the in in the, in the countryside. So the white rates still uh, of males still don't exceed the black rates, but they're rising very steeply, and that's where uh, the the the, uh, the deaths of despair have been rising sharpest. Peter, when I see a worm in, in the dirt, I, I generally don't think I'm related. But in your timepiece, you suggest that we have much to learn from worms. You write, our ancestor half a billion years ago was a marine worm equipped with a brain. Uh, and you go on to explain that this worm operated on dopamine, the same, I guess, the same drugs that, that we operate on. Is there a very clear lineage between that worm half a billion years ago and us humans today? Well, yeah, this is a subject of, uh, of you know, many, many, many scientific studies. Uh, it's not a direct uh, link, but yes, once we got, once worms appeared, uh, they had a brain. And one of the reasons they had a brain is before that, they had a clock, a biological clock, which would tell them what time of, uh, was day and what was night and how to switch their biochemical metabolism from day to night and to operate efficiently. 
and uh, and the worms needed a way they needed signals to find food. So so there's a circuit that tells you to seek seek food, seek seek water, seek warmth, seek mates, seek friends, and uh, companions. And the worm does this. And when when the worm finds one thing or the other of these things, it gets a little drop of this chemical uh, dopamine. Uh, it's not a drug. It's actually a fundamental neural transmitter. And that allows uh, the seeking to, to pause briefly. And uh, we experience this pulse of dopamine as a, as a moment of relief. You can sort of catch your breath and relax for a minute before the circuit says, well, you got food, but uh, you need some water or it's pretty chilly. You better find, uh, get a sweater or, or find a warm place and you go on to the next need. And each time you find it without really expecting it, you get a little pulse. So, uh, so that has been driving us uh, since, since we were worms. Of course, we could trace our way back from, from uh, being uh, hominids to, to, uh, to primates that were simpler monkeys, back to uh, primitive mammals and so on, all the way back to fish, back into the, into the water, um, and in each, in each case, we split off from some earlier ancestor, but our very early ancestor was definitely uh, some sort of worm, yes. I, I get it on the worm front, Keith. Um, uh, Peter, not Keith. Um, but what about on the empathy front? You had an interesting piece in Scientific American uh, entitled uh, COVID-19 uh, and the Harsh Reality of Empathy Distribution. Can we explain empathy in biological, uh, evolutionary terms? Uh, or are some of us simply more empathetic than others? Or are some of us simply better than others when it comes to being sympathetic to other people? Well, I think it's, I think it's both. Uh, most of our, all of our traits of various kinds, I mean, empathy, my point was there, empathy is a particular trait and some people have a lot of it and some people yeah, you said it comes from genetics. You said empathy has a substantial genetic contribution, about half as much as height, uh, a group of researchers found in, in 2018. And I'm wondering whether you feel you inherited empathy, because you are a very distinguished uh, scientist, uh, Peter, but also a political activist. As I said, 60 years ago, you... you, you um, you, you were bravely involved in the freedom marches. You risked your life. Where, did you inherit empathy? Do we inherit it? Or are some people simply wired to be more empathetic than others, irrespective of where they come from? Yeah, well, this is, uh, this is exactly my point, that we are wired for these things. And the wiring starts out as um, partly it's generated by genes that are turning on and off at the right right time. And so you, you have a, a propensity to do something. When you do something uh, for which you, that you find rewarding, for example, being praised for behavior by your parents, uh, rewarded by praise, you tend to repeat it. And so you gradually learn it and then strengthen. So if you have a little propensity for, for empathy in your intrinsic circuits, and your parent and you practice it because you get praise for it it gets stronger and stronger if you have because of your genetic inheritance very little natural empathy 
and your parents who gave you those genes don't have much either, then you don't get rewarded for it and you, you become uh, progressively less empathic. And I think, uh, you know, I think I- So that speaks of the importance of the family. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, my family was, my father in particular, was uh, extremely empathic and he, he tutored me in this and he uh, persistently encouraged me to behave empathically. And, uh, you know, so this is part of my values, I would say, uh, you know, so the people who, we, who are clearly non-empathic, such as our ex-former president, uh, he didn't get that from his father and he didn't have much to begin with. And so he's, uh, he's probably as strong an example of very little empathy as we could find. It's interesting, Peter, that you you write about um, uh, about your involvement in the Freedom Rides uh, in association with uh, current biology. Um, you, you you write that uh, that what's happening today in America is good turmoil, uh, and, and in this piece you have photos of bus burnings and and, and a narrative about the the violence that you experienced on, on the journey down from the North to Alabama. Um, what do you most remember about the Freedom Rides now, 60 years um, later? Oh, well, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, 50 years, uh, 10 years ago, there was a 50th anniversary and many of the original Freedom Riders uh, converged on Jackson, Mississippi, where the, where we had been uh, jailed, and um, it was good to see everybody. I, you know, I, I got to meet some people I hadn't known, re reunite with uh, some people I had joined, and I didn't. I realized I, when we came back, I read a whole book on the history of the Freedom Rides, and what I learned from that book, and also from the from the uh, NPR, the the uh, PBS series, a film on the Freedom Rides, it's a two hour film, was that the Freedom Rides were really carefully planned ahead of time as a test to see if uh, the federal uh, government would, would enforce desegregation uh, on interstate travel. And clearly they, they weren't doing it. And so the Freedom Rides sort of uh, all of a sudden developed as a, as a massive test of this, of this right. And at that time, um, with the Kennedys, where it was 1961, uh, Jack and Bobby Kennedy were, I wouldn't say they were real, they, were, they tried to persuade the Freedom Riders to stop. Mm, and indeed, uh, Tim Jackson in his post-growth book, as you know, uh, it, it's, it, the narrative is built around uh, 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 Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy. Right. Robert, uh, That's right. Kennedy. That's right. But his, his, Jack, his, his narrative starts in 1968. And uh, I, yeah. I, I discussed that with him. In 1961, uh, Bobby Kennedy was not ready for this. And he was, he was, but he was worried about the pub bad publicity, international publicity. So uh, he, you know, he, he tried to hold this back, but it was unstoppable. So I think what I took from this uh, PBS uh, film, which is really terrific, it's, a, it's still available, is that um, 
the the grown-ups we were foot soldiers i was 20 and there were foot soldiers um and we were we were carrying out the the larger wise uh well-financed plans of uh, of civil rights workers uh, leaders such as uh you know were core was one congress on racial equality the naacp and so on they had figured out this was the time to move and they had a bunch of students young people who were ready to go and, and so that that's what i i took i take in retrospect is that uh, it, it needed bodies but it needed a great deal of planning and thought uh, uh, ahead of time you're you're a little too self-effacing peter i think you're you're not willing to take any credit um, you, you, the, the credit that you give in your piece is the significance of the United States Communist Party. Um, and you suggest that they learned the courage and the principles. Do we need to relearn that, the history of American communism? Is it something that, of course, these people were persecuted throughout the 1940s and 50s, perhaps even the 60s and even today? Um, are there principles that your parents and perhaps you learned that generally Americans can learn. Yesterday we had the, and again, a, an interesting book that you might look at by the uh, University of Michigan um, historian of antiquity, David Potter on disruption, why things change, in which he says we have much to learn from Lenin and Bolshevism in terms of the injustices of today. Um, are there things that we need to go back to if we're to make sense of today's disruption and the injustices and inequalities of capitalism? Uh, well, I'm not a historian. Uh, I did grow up on some of these things. And I, I would say that um, I grew up with uh, reading Marx, Karl Marx, and, and Marx and Lenin's uh, Communist Manifesto. And it's a short document. You can get it on the internet. And this is the origin of the of the uh, the idea that uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And, you know, this is a way of this is an attitude toward the world. You, you, you try to give to people, provide for people who uh, who need something but are not quite as able, perhaps. And I feel that uh, I was I was given quite a lot of ability. Uh, I was given a certain amount of courage, and uh, uh, and so I feel. So even your courage, I, you feel, is inherited. Well, is there I, any I, reason to reward yourself? I mean, everyone has agency, Peter. Not just you, you can't just you, you just can't blame everything on genetics, can you? No, no, it's genetics and and my parents. Look, uh, the article in current biology. You have brothers and sisters. Did you have brothers and sisters, or do you I have did, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I, my sister is deeply engaged as well. Uh, she's a leader in uh, in uh, gender gender, I, you know, the, the rights of genders uh, of you know all genders. She's she's she wrote a a famous article called "The Five Sexes," that's widely quoted. Um, but I think it wasn't just the genes. It's my parents uh, were struggling the whole time and were uh, you know suffered a certain amount of um, threat to their own lives uh, from this. I, I reprint in, in this current biology uh, journal the cross that was burned on my parents' lawn in June 1961. And that was because my mother um, 
helped a, a black family who were friends of hers rent a house in, in an apartment in a, in a white uh, garden condo. And so uh, so we, we got the lesson uh, from their behavior and from dinner table conversations uh, every night. Um, and so I, one of the things that I, I realized that's wrong with Marx, yeah, Karl Marx, is that um, he, he, he wrote about the, he believed that there were laws of human history and that it was, would be inevitable that we would end up with communism. And I think I've come to see that uh, as, a, as a mistake. Marx did not read uh, uh, Darwin and he didn't really fully accept that we are just a species of animal. And if you accept that we are a species of animal descended from a worm, <laughs> then you have to abandon the idea that there are laws of history. We don't know where history is going. Has anyone, um, uh, has anyone fused the two traditions, Peter, of Marxism and Darwinism? Well, I, I, this is what I am trying to do. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> um, uh, are they compatible? Can they be fused, or are they so foreign to one another? No, I th well, I think uh, I think Marx's passion was to uh, to create a society where people would uh, contribute according to their ability and help people according to their need. I mean, that was his spiritual attitude. Okay, and uh, I think he was he was a spiritual man in in, in that sense, and so. Uh, I think that spirit is is very compatible with Darwin, but we just have to keep in mind that we we are animals, and we have to understand that. Uh, I mean, the point about empathy is we're not the only empathic animal. There's a if you have a rat and it it sees another rat that's trapped in a in a cage, and there's a lever that the first rat can press that releases his uh, his brother rat or sister rat, he'll do it. And you'll go to a lot of trouble to do it. So, uh, uh, animals. Right. So, uh, uh, Sherry Turkle reminds us of that in her empathy diaries. Uh, we had the English, um, uh, I guess, social theorists Nicola Rehani on the show recently. Uh -huh. uh, she has a new book out, "The Social Instinct: How Cooperation Shaped the World." She is also. Uh, I guess a Darwinian thinker. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rehani's work, but I assume you share her um, scientific uh, reading of cooperation when it comes to our species. Yes, definitely. Uh, also, my colleague Michael Platt, uh, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, um, uh, jo Joseph uh, Henrik, who's at Harvard in social... Right, and Joe Henrik has actually been on the show too talking yeah, about yeah, uh, no, his, I, his weird I, book his weirdest yeah, book that's right and he, he has another earlier one which is great called the secret of our success but no i i am very much in that spirit but there is agency peter isn't there let's end uh, on the issue of human agency which of course was marx's uh one of his great contribution is the role of human agency uh, i'm not quite sure he was the determinist that some people have suggested. We had Sarah uh, Horowitz on the show recently. Like you, the f a woman who uh, is from a family of, of, of labor organizers, she writes in her new book, Mutualism, 
about the need to organize on the labor front. Um, Marx, of course, was above all else a theorist of work and of class and of the way in which technology can liberate us. Are you encouraged, Peter, by the promise of artificial technology in terms of liberating us from the the drudgery of work? Marx seemed to think that industrial technology would liberate us. It didn't. Um, Can digital liberate us and finally free us from our enslavement to capitalism? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think it's uh, it's taking us down the road to uh, a climate or a climatological Armageddon. No, I, I, I think uh, we have all the stuff we need. We, we just have to consume less. We have to work less. We have to relax more. I mean, the community I live in, in Panama, is a rural community where People grow their crops with a hoe and a, and a, and a shovel, and they live pretty. They live pretty happily. Uh, they're not. They're not uh, in despair. They're not uh, dying with suicide and drugs overdose. We live in a community where there are no police, for example. We people just behave reasonably, and they uh, they have a spiritual life. So I, I, I'm not. I mean, of course, I benefited scientifically from all of this technology, but. Uh, I, you know, I have a garden now, and I'm. <laughs> uh, I think that people could do a lot better by stepping back. I'm not saying abandon technology, but certainly stepping back from it. And uh, well, in this sense, you're very much on the the same page or image as Jackson, his post-growth life after capitalism, or his his other book, uh, Prosperity Without Growth. Right. And finally, Peter, you end on your timepiece suggesting that. Actually, going back to 1941, I've never heard this argument before. It's an interesting one. Uh, after 1941, after the five days after Pearl Harbor, rationing was introduced into America, rationing of, of transportation goods and foods. You say that that actually wouldn't be such a bad thing. Maybe we need to go back to rationing. Um, yeah, I'm not an economist, but it seems to make sense to me. I mean, if we everybody had a certain number of air air miles they could spend each year and they could trade them, we could reduce, you know, air travel. Uh, you know, all of the things that we need to do to, uh, to get the climate back on track, we need to do right away. I mean, we're really in trouble. Well, one thing I would not suggest rationing on are books and Peter Sterling's new book, or relatively new book, I think it was out last year, What is Health? Allostasis and the Evolution of Human Design is, is a really interesting read for, uh, I think, more, more the, the scientifically inclined us. But he, he has an enormously important contribution across the field in political activism, in thinking about the environment, thinking about empathy, thinking about disease. Peter, uh, in these strange times, I know you're still in Massachusetts. Half the year you live there, half the year you live in Panama. Uh, what else should people be reading in addition to your book to become wise like you? <laughs> well, look, I, I would say, um, although part of that book has uh, some technical part to it, you seem to have done very well with it. And uh, I, I would say that, you know, determined readers can 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 do pretty well with it. So Absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm, de I'm definitely not discouraging people. People, yeah, should, yeah. people need to read um, it. It's an important book. And it's a... Uh, it's, uh, I think it's a Princeton University book uh, publication. MIT, uh, MIT. Uh, sorry, MIT. Wait, yeah. that was yeah. a mistake. Well, 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's not chop level either, Peter. That's quite an accomplishment. So, yeah, people need to read your book. What else should people be reading, though? Well, you know, um, again, it's, I'd say the, the most profound um, book that I have read in the last 10 or 15 years is Darwin's Origin of Species. And even though I'm a biologist, I never read it until about 10 years ago. I thought, oh, it'll be dry, it'll be dull, I know this, I know that already. But in fact, it's so brilliantly reasoned and so wonderfully stated. It's, it's, uh, it's a tremendous uh, piece of work. And, um, and he's a, he just comes across as this tremendous human being. And at the end, uh, I wrote an earlier book with a, with a colleague, Simon Laughlin, called Principles of Neural Design. And at the end, he said, you know, we have to write a, a summary of this book. I said, well, no, we're tired. I, we don't need a summary. And so, but he insisted. So I went back and I read Darwin's summary at the end of this Origin of Species. And uh, it's, it's so inspiring to read his overview of what he's, the arguments he's made and how he understands it. And uh, he's, ju he's just a, calm, deeply thoughtful man. And I don't think you could end wonderful writing. I don't think you could do better. Uh, mm. Well, The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, one of the yeah. two most influential books of the 19th century with Marx's Communist Manifesto or Capital, perhaps. Uh, Peter Sterling, a guy who uh, not only is a follower of Darwin, but also in some ways of Marx, someone committed to combining them. Congratulations, Peter, on a, on a remarkable um, a remarkable series of, of works on your book, on your articles, on your commitment to political justice. Uh, I hope we'll have you back on the show again because I think your voice is a really important one. Thank you so much. Keep well. And maybe next time we can talk to you from Panama and you can show us uh, your garden there. Thanks so well, much, Peter. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew, very much. I've, I've enjoyed this a lot. Great. See you soon.